0: And I'm Quentin Wilson, and together we are the Two Enthusiast Podcast. Two Enthusiasts Podcast, the flummiest motorcycle podcast on the <laughs> internet.
1: Well, you don't let it happen, though. You don't you oh, you man. edit out my flums, but this I time you're your not going to edit out yours. Oh man,
0: there's so many. There's going to be so. Many. So people don't understand that I probably spend close to four hours just editing out like Quentin's little throat clearings because you just you're an eloquent man. You speak with eloquence. You're, I put the eloquence. You don't in turn eloquence. your phone off during the podcast, apparently. But oh, no. you, you speak with eloquence and and, uh, and a certain surety. But to do that, you you kind of give a
1: little. It kind of sounds like your van when you start it up. Yeah, no, it doesn't. That's that's way <laughs> worse because it would be. <laughs> 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 so yeah I got, i'm got. i still kind of recovering
0: a little bit from the the mega flu that i got uh, a couple weeks ago which just if you notice like nothing got done on asphalt and rubber
1: <clears throat>
0: <clears throat> oh yeah there's number one there we yeah. go uh yeah just like a week of just unable to get out of bed just absolutely leveled myself and a few of our motorcycling friends up here in portland we all got it at the same motorcycle related shindig holiday shindig uh i think we figured out who patient zero is and i'm just saying that person should watch their back yeah like they some stuff's gonna go down
1: yeah i bet
0: retribution style
1: mm.
0: i just watched the uh the tanya hardy movie movie
1: oh was it good it's pretty good, it's yeah, good. that's a that's it's a, portland, a portland, thing. portland story yeah it's important down sure. the clack
0: uh-huh um, but you know, patient zero is just gonna get like a baton to the knee, just yeah. Nancy Kerrigan style.
1: Kerrigan, Kerrigan, that one for sure. Yeah, Ugh. Kerrigan can't Kerr Kerr can't Kerr can't. Nah, almost. Yeah. Well, I'm still recovering. You're getting the away. <laughs> <laughs> but um,
0: so yeah, I think we had a happy holiday to you, sir. Yeah. Happy New Year. Yeah. We're we're still kind of gonna shuffle through the last of our our 2017 news, and I think next show maybe talk about
1: the future. Yeah, we like the future.
0: Uh you were telling me before the show that you had an interesting experience of a different Italian kind.
1: oh yeah. So just today I got a chance to ride in a Ferrari Testarossa. And a Testarossa is a mid-80s <clears throat> supercar it is has a boxer <clears throat> <clears throat> engine. So the pistons fight each other. They're you know they right? yeah. <laughs> 12 cylinders. Uh, the cylinder heads—it's really just the valve covers. This is red. the car that was on my walls. Yeah, kid. everybody, like anybody that's—I would even even kids that are younger than us, even deep into millennials, had Testarossa because it's just a it's a quintessential Ferrari from the eighties because it has the gills on the side, right? It's Miami Vice is, yeah, yeah, right. And because of that, because of the Miami Vice, it was a white Testarossa, um, and because it was such a strikingly different Pininfarina designed car, it was an amazing car. And, you know, they only, Ferrari only had so many boxer engines. There's the Berlinetta Boxer from the late 70s, similar deal, rear engine, big flat 12, and then this. But then they got away from it after a while, went back to Vs um, in the late 90s. I think the the 512 TR might have been the last of the Testarossa-based vehicles. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a full-on expert. I, I, I did enjoy the cars, though, when they were new and in it. So, this is one of these deals where it's like, uh, never meet your heroes. Cause I was like, oh no, this is probably going to suck, but I have to ride in this car. So, um, the proprietor of Motocorsa, Corsa who also, uh, uh, I say moonlights, but he doesn't moonlight. He, he is general manager, general manager of the Ferrari shop and the Ducati shop here in Portland. He got one in on trade and he brought it to Motocorsa, Corsa and I, I was there and it was like a slate gray or a, a you know, a, not not just silver but a dark a dark gray beautiful and i was like i have to i have to ride in this take take me for a ride and he was giving rides because it's like a a really big deal he is brought by all kinds of new ferraris they're all very trick looking they're all very neat but nothing that makes you like that made me want to get in and, and feel what it was like so i get in we just go for a quick brap around the neighborhood and it was fucking unreal good it was like really good like uh, one of the more soul shaking awesome verifications that a vehicle is rad you get in it and i wasn't even driving it i but you don't need to in a car that's that badass with all of the engine like inches away from you behind you not horrifically loud not obnoxious but the sound and the vibe and the feel of that car was exactly as you would expect like point it in a general direction and get the throttle on and go. And it was really cool. And it felt awesome. And it was very, soul. like I said, it it shook the soul, right? So that is something that I draw an analog to with bikes that aren't the same old, same old inline four-cylinder or inline twin, that don't have the soul that just work like sewing machines and do the thing really well. Cause I guarantee you if he would have brought up a, um, a newer, say a, a Nissan skyline, which I would say is the, like one of the newer, faster, most badass cars that could run rings around pretty much everything else out there, but you get in it and it works so well that you don't even notice it and you don't have the vibe and you don't have the feel. The only getting it on track could you get it to the limit to where it would feel super rad? Whereas this thing, he just pulled away and I'm like, this is rad. I could stop. right?" It was like just pulling away and accelerating one time. I was like, that's cool. right?" Watching the the shifter go through the gate because it has a gated shifter and hearing the clink clinks and the, oh dude, it was so badass and red leather surrounding you and beautiful. It was like you get inside the car and it's timeless. You don't think, oh, this thing feels like 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. It feels comfortable and bitching just like a new car would. Uh, so I thought that was a pretty cool experience. And I don't know if it's the same analog to where if you'd ride a, say, a nine sixteen relative to a new, Gixxer thousand, but it's that's the way I'm trying to explain it to people. Is that that's that's that vibe and feel that only an older, almost analog car or bike would have. It was really neat. Yeah, I think I think to bring it back to the motorcycling side of it, that's.
0: That's the X factor that's so hard, I think, for manufacturers to understand. And it's, I don't even know if it's one of those things that you can intentionally incorporate into a machine. You know, that idea, that connection, what the, what Yamaha would call the condo, that connection with the machine that makes you feel good. It's, I don't know. I I mean. It'd be curious to talk to like a, an engineer and get their perspective on it. I think if you talk to like a designer, I think when we talked to Miguel Galuzzi, actually um, a few shows back on the Aprilia show, I think we talked a little bit about that. And I can see like from a design perspective, how like when you're, you're kind of an artist, your artistry kind of is supposed to evoke emotion. So that kind of gets into it. But I wonder how like an engineer who's like hard science equations and materials, how they view something like that.
1: They don't and they'll end up, conspiring with bean counters to make them the thing that makes the most power or gets around a racetrack the fastest or hits all the marks on the numbers that they need to hit whether it be uh, weight or lap times or whatever with the the cheapest amount
0: yeah but that's kind of the the thing that i think about though when like like, i don't want to get i don't want to get too far into the drinking game but like When Ducati decides to go to a four-cylinder machine, they're like, oh, we want to do a 90-degree V4 because of certain mechanical characteristics that are in line with our ethos. Whereas, like, you look at, like, BMW, when they came at it, uh, the Superbike equation, however many years ago that was. Oh, man, it's over 10 years now, isn't it? About. Um, They're like, four-cylinder sewing machine, let's do it. Like, we're going to just copy the Japanese model and, and go after them on price and performance. But I wonder if there was ever, like, discussion, like, well, you know, hey, we got a clean slate. Like, should we do a four-cylinder? What about what about a three-cylinder? What about a V4? What about a V-twin? What about a parallel twin? You know, like, I want to know what the roundtable discussion about, like, the very early, early days for for just, like, broad vehicle design. If there was someone that was just like, well, I think it should be this because, you know, that's going to evoke an emotion. Or if it's just all brass tacks, well, parallel twins cost, you know, 30% less to make, so our MSRP could be this and yeah. da, 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 Well da, da, I think da,
1: that's da. what's guiding it mostly now. Whereas in the late seventies, early eighties, nobody knew, or nobody really knew. There was production processes were in place and they understood what beans needed to be counted, but they also understood what hauled ass. So when Ducati or sorry, when Honda um went with a V4 kind of trickling down from the NR five hundred architecture, they're like, hmm. You know this V situation would probably be good. Let's try this, and then they made then the V VF- abandoned it though. Oh well, no, sure, but that's what I'm saying. So if you look at the way that went, and we've talked about this through the 80s, the V4 architecture into the late 90s, all right, and then poof, gone. So they let it carry on through the RC45, but then then they went to the V twin, and they the the RC51 had the soul and it had the vibe and the feel. It wasn't quite the mechanical cacophony that the Ducatis were at the time, but it didn't matter because you knew you were getting that sewing machine smoothness that the Honda was going to provide. But it had just by virtue of the fact that it had, I mean, all, all of these twins have, um, uh, crank, or sorry, rods that are, are next to each other. So there's a little bit of a rocking couple vibration that's more than the sewing machine smooth four-cylinder. There's always going to be, or, or not a buzziness, there's just a, there's a vibe instead of a, a big vibe instead of a small vibe, right? A lower frequency instead of a higher frequency. Something that's pleasing more to a lot of people than that vibration that you're getting through a two-stroke or a four-cylinder inline. But eventually they said, all right, well, we're going to go back to four-cylinders because the CC size is going to go to everybody's going to have to be a 1,000 or whatever it was that was dictating it from a racing standpoint. And they probably were tired of having to, you know, spend a lot of money to e horsepower out of that RC51 in the early 2000s because that was a very expensive bike to make go fast because they were having to rev the shit out of it. And that is where cost comes in. So they go to the the four-cylinder inline. And yeah, the bulk of the industry was fine with that because that's what most people were, had had trickled down to. But those of us who were into it are like, yeah, boring. Well, why get on that? It's that's boring. And I got tired of it. I mean, so by the mid two thousands, there I was with a uh, uh, a Triumph six seven five, and even that kind of got old after a while for me. And I get back on twins, and I'm stoked. So would it be something that they come back around to? I don't know. For me, like you, you, said the V4 went away, and
0: it didn't. It just got sequestered yeah. into bland horribleness. Like yeah. the V4s ended up going in, and this That's- is this is the tragedy of the VFR line, really. You know, when it, it started out as kind of like a racy sure. sort of thing. You know, this is this is the race bikes. These are the 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 RCs, and then you kind of get into like. The VFR 800. Yeah, and I forgot.
1: That's how bad it is. As I and forgot. Then the, and then the VTech oh, comes in, sure.
0: and then it's VFR 1200. And now yeah. we've got like a couple V4s in Honda's ST, lineup. The ST 1100 and
1: 1200, or whatever that current CC set 1300 for the ST, the one that has the transverse V4, right? right? Right. So they still had them, and it was still good in certain ways, but not in the way that I'm thinking of RC30. Right. Right. It was. It went into the. Um, now it's in the cross tour it's in the yeah. it's in the yeah. vfr 1200 f
0: it's in these bikes that you know and that's the thing that really that i find really interesting it's in these bikes that i would say or i think others would accuse of being soulless you know and i've ri- and i've ridden all those v4s and man that is those are bikes that are not memorable yeah they probably do a thing really well like i remember riding the cross tour one and being like yeah it's all right. If this if this didn't weigh like 550 pounds, it, it's, not an, it's not an ADV bike. You're not really going to go off-road with it. You might go down some fire trails. You go down fire trails just like you would on any other bike. Yeah, slowly and carefully. But I was just like, man, there's just so many other better tools in the toolbox. Even in Honda's
1: own lineup, there's so many better tools in the toolbox than what this is giving me. Now, I rode a VFR 1200 about a year ago. It was the one that was automatic. And I liked it. I thought it actually worked pretty well, but it wasn't enough for me to be stoked on it. It wasn't memorable enough for me to be like, "Oh yeah." And it was definitely not the engine that that gave me. It it, it works so smoothly and seamlessly, which goes back to the Testarossa thing. That that engine's smooth. A boxer engine is very well balanced, even in that high RPM twelve cylinder. Especially because it's a high RPM twelve cylinder, it's amazingly smooth. But it it doesn't matter that it's smooth because it's making this sound and the representation of that sound getting into the cabin was unreal. And it was so, of course, it's a low and long and fast and wide, so it's sexy. And on the outside, it definitely gets your heart racing more looking at it. But then once you look at it and you get in it and it's good, it's like all the package. So that's that's the nine sixteen. You look at the nine sixteen, you're like, oh my god, that is a good looking bike. And then you get on it and you thumb the throttle and it, or thumb the starter and start the throttle and it. It is an amazing sound. Yeah. And then it accelerates well and it handles really well. And on and on and on. Then that's what makes an icon, right? Okay, so how do you square?
0: I got I got like three things I want to come back to, but the first one will we'll Tarantino it. How do you square what you just said with the nine sixteen? Having a V twin engine, and let's say an MV Augusta F four, like seven fifty or thousand, one of the older tambourine yeah. designs, which I would say have for me the same yeah. visceral experience, sure. and that's that sewing machine inline four cylinder. Yeah, but they figured out a way,
1: um, or they just is, buy- it, is it the design? It, Is it just the the bodywork and the the aesthetic? So you do you approach that, and it's one of the most beautiful. It, it's iconically good. It's going to be good. It, it's timeless. For right? me, it
0: might be the most beautiful motorcycle yeah, ever. I, I
1: agree. There, I was just looking at one today. I'm thinking, damn, that looks good. But strangely, it was sitting next to a 1985 GSXR 750, and I was like, fuck, that 750 looks really good too. It's strange, right? It's just part of, part of what your brain, what your brain, what fires, what synapse, right? But you're right on the mechanical side. The MV. <sighs> It is raw. They are more raw. That four-cylinder engine that's in there is more raw. It makes more vibration. It has more of a mechanical sound to it. It sounds, you know, a lot of people make fun of me, but it sounds like a diesel at low RPM. And it has just a growl to it that is like no other. Well, it's that weird like undertail exhaust. It has that, a weird, that's weird part shape of to it. the pipe. Yeah. That's part of it is the exhaust. But you don't really hear the exhaust when it's sitting there on idle over the sound of the engine itself, which is gnarly. I mean, it's a very... Uh, loud. I'll say this is loud four cylinder. I not because when they were designing it, they were like, "We're going to give this radial valves." At the time, that was a big deal. Uh, hard to explain that, but basically, the the valves don't um, approach the combustion chamber in parallel. They come and kind of come in at a little bit of an angle in a radial way. Look it up. Sorry, I can't describe it very well, but it's a good it's, radio. It's yeah. unique to that and the Honda. Uh, there was a there was a Honda 600 or 500 from the 80s and maybe even my maybe even my XR 650 still has that radial design. I'm not even sure. Twin it's it's a different it's a different thing than than most would do because you have to grind the cams at at an angle. So that was one thing they did. Does that make the sound? No. But they I don't think they thought through any kind of like, well, we have to make this quiet because we have to pass the emissions, the noise emission standards. Whereas every Japanese manufacturer has been on that program putting weird stuff and, and on the cam chain side of their engines forever to, to reduce the sound, et cetera, et cetera. And they are like, no, I, I'm pretty sure they just didn't give a shit. What is light and what, what, what is going to be fast. Right. So they would do that. So, and I think that's what happened with that bike. And it does have a different soul to it. It has a different sound to it than a normal Japanese inline four, but you're right. It's the same thing. Same goes with the Yamaha crossplane holy shit, do those things sound good. And it gives you a completely different experience riding it. But I'll say you ride one of those and it still feels very tame and, and bland. And it's bizarre. You're like, this makes the sound that I love. But if you get on it, you're like, well, it works like a sewing machine. It's so strange. It's, it's a kind of a combination of sound and vibration and feel, and butt feel. I don't know if we have to, right? Is it butt feel? I think it might just be like philosophy and idea. Cause like one of the
0: other things I wanted to circle back to is what you were talking about with the VFR 1200 and it's not a bad bike. It's not a bad bike. No, it's just, it's just not a VFR. You know, when you look at that lineup of, of motorcycles and the history that it has, I think Honda has done like such a disservice to VFR owners and is, and in a way has left them, by the wayside with where they've taken that brand maybe not realizing that that there was like a loyal brand that they were building here along the same vein as say a gold wing yeah and they've kind of been abandoned and i think the vfr 1200 was the bike that really like solidified that abandonment because it just it it's not a great tour it's not a sport bike it's heavy it's big yeah okay it's got the v4 engine in it and the VFR line, I think Honda tried to take the the modern-day VFRs and make them the, the showcase for its best technologies. Yeah. You know, they were the first – I want to say they were the first bikes from Honda to come with ABS. They were the first bikes the to VVT. come – The VVT. The, the first bike from Honda to come with the VTEC, yeah. branded as VTEC, variable yeah. valve timing. And then they were the first bike to come with the dual-clutch transmission, the DCT. And, you know, that's – I don't think that's what VFR owners are in it for. And I don't think Honda really got that. And I think that speaks volumes to maybe how, from like a philosophical point of view, Honda doesn't understand its owners. And maybe the Japanese brands don't understand their owners. The same thing talking about like the Yamaha R1 with a cross-plane crank. Like from a mechanical point of view, it should be doing all the things. But there's something in the execution that misses the mark
1: it's the ruthless efficiency and i think that's for it like they're so good at making it so good right that 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 efficiency gets it it, it's it softens up the sharp of the of of this visceral whatever that is that we're that i want whether it be the sound or the vibration or the or the way the bike handles or whatever i think that maybe it softens it because it it's just so good, right? You get on it and it's seamless and it does all the things and you don't you don't have to deal with any weird idiosyncrasies like you do with the Ducati or with you like you do with the MV. And I'm not saying idiosyncrasies well, pick as in any it, European
0: brand, really. Sure, but to you extent. get on that's
1: that's why I did dislike the BMW S one thousand R is you get on it and it is ruthlessly efficient. It is so damn good that it's not and that for me I, that 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 embodies what we're talking about right now as you get on a you get you approach the bike and it's ugly as all get out but you know damn well it's good, right? You know that it's the, the shape and the size and the all the stuff. It does the thing. And then you get on the thing and it's comfortable. It works pretty well. It's, there's nothing wrong with the cockpit. Everything's generally where you need it to be. It works okay. You thumb the starter and you get going and it just works. And it works really well. And you haul ass on it and it hauls ass for you and... I don't know. For me, it just doesn't do a goddamn thing for me, which is really bizarre. You'd think the top of the top would do that, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Right. Whereas the Honda, when we were riding uh, this year for Deathmatch, uh, rest in peace, Deathmatch. But the Deathmatch, riding the S uh, Honda CBR. SP yeah. CBR one thousand RR SP two SP. It was just SP. That thing had soul. It had a whole bowl full of soul, man. It was rad. It worked really well. It had the vibration that I hadn't felt in a while. It had the a few of the little idiosyncrasies that were like, "What the hell? This is a Honda," and I loved it. It also had
0: a box full of neutrals, but you know that's. Well,
1: maybe that's right. I didn't get that right. I don't. You know, fair enough. If if it was a if it was a problem, those that that type of thing isn't a problem that I that I chalk up to idiosyncrasies. That's like, okay, that would be a major issue. It was like when the BMW was not shifting well because of its uh, uh, quick shifter not functioning right. Right. But I'm not necessarily blaming that. It was just that wasn't working that day, you know? One of the things I think it's interesting, by the time this podcast comes out, I'll
0: be on a plane to Valencia to ride the Panigale V4. And one of my my early critiques and I would say early complaints of that bike is that Ducati didn't really swing for the fence in terms of you have this point in time where you're transitioning from V twin to V4 in your superbike lineup. And isn't that like a really big deal? And instead of like a, a, a root, completely fresh design, we're kind of recycling the better parts of the Panagali. In fact, we're calling it a Panagali. We're yeah. calling it a Panagali V4 and yeah. it's, it just feels more like an update or, or a refresh than an, than an all new motorcycle. In the same vein, whereas, like, the 916 was so different from the 999, which was so different from the 1098, which was so different from the 1199. And then the Panigale V4 is just kind of like, oh, by the way. But I would say, just looking at the spec sheet, it's going to be – it's it's taking the Panigale design and refining it so much better. And one of the things I'll be looking for at that launch is – it's kind of like this Honda approach. Did Ducati kind of take this Honda approach where it was like, we are just, we are just honing down the best version of X that we can come up with. And we're just, how can we make X better instead of, you know, at the, at the detriment of not even looking at Y or Z? And I think that's, that's my kind of like critique of like the Panigale V4. It's like, you know, instead of, um, you know like the nine sixteen was a the nine 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 was b the yeah. ten you know the c d we're just we're just building that same letter we're just making a better letter and I'm gonna be really curious to see if that's if they've lost some of the artistry in that if there is that resonance and that connection and that emotional visceral reaction to writing a just a better version of something versus a a new motorcycle that could have evoked more emotion in me when I first saw it. Cause I, I mean, that's, that's my, that's my biggest problem with that bike is I, I felt nothing when I saw it. I was like, Oh, it's like the old bike. I mean, you put a whole new engine in it, but like
1: visually it's the old bike. Yeah. For me, I was like, Oh, it looks like a super sport. The one they just came out with. Right. Like, I oh. Yeah. I don't really, I mean, it looks like a super sport because the super sport
0: looks like a Panigale. So I, I to sure. me, it just looks yeah, like another sure. yeah. 1299. But, but to finish up one of the other points i wanted to tarantino back to i've been thinking a lot about the future of the motorcycle industry and we talked about this at our live show in the last podcast and i and i'm kind of like i'm still kind of trying to see the whole board but i have this feeling that the american market or at least maybe the definitely the american market but but to some extent the western market has missed the the moment to have motorcyclist transportation And we're about to commoditize transportation through autonomous vehicles, which is gonna leave automobiles and motorcycles and trucks and all these other things as purely recreational items. Like like I feel like that could be that could be the thing. And the brands that are gonna succeed in that new transportation paradigm are gonna be the ones that are able to connect rider and machine. The most effectively, you know, have that condo or have that terre blanche, tambourine, visceral reaction of design, you know, whatever that, that X factor is, you know, call it whatever you want. And I'm kind of curious to see if that will be the death of brands that, that don't get that, 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 that are just out there to make the best sewing machine possible, to make the best superbike iteration, the best X model, whatever that is. And I'm kind of I'm kind of curious. I'm still kind of percolating on the idea, but it's on my
1: brain. Well, number one for me is how long really will this take before you weed out all of us enthusiasts, all anybody that has ridden a combustion engine vehicle, a thermic vehicle, right? Anybody that has anybody up to the next probably fifteen twenty years before it starts going to a lot all electric or autonomous. And seamless, like a combination of electric and autonomous, or both, whatever. So there might
0: be the child born already that will never ride a thermic vehicle.
1: Maybe, and so that's the like question. That, it's close. It's you know? that it is that close. So that's one question to be like, all right, well, how much does that matter for us, and how much will it matter for this industry? Well, it's close enough. The fact that we're it's debatable makes it scary that it could be by 2030, twenty thirty twenty twenty thirty five where it starts getting to that point. But and at that time though. There's going to be, I feel, cottage industry, I was just thinking about this the other day, of of fuel. And that's going to be the thing is where to get the fuel to, to, uh, get the vehicles going. And I know there's a lot of people out there like, you're crazy. This is not going to happen, but yeah, I don't know. It's not that far off well, to think that it might be difficult to secure the fuel. If most of the vehicles are, are transferring to non fuel based, I don't think it's going to be difficult. I think it's just going
0: to be, what are you, what are you going to be willing to pay for
1: it? Yeah, it'll be expensive because, sure. because that, you know, that, and that was the argument
0: I had with <laughs> when I interviewed with Exxon mobile and I asked them, you know, like,
1: What's your hundred-year plan? What are you or, gonna
0: What are you gonna do when the, when we run out of oil? And they're like, "Oh, we're never gonna run out of oil." And we had this like big conversation about finite resources. But there is a little bit of a truth of as it gets more scarce and the price goes up, the demand will lower. And so it's totally feasible to be like, "Yeah, you you know, fifty years from now, when you know, electrics or hydrogen or whatever you know, nuclear you know, power yeah. plants take over in terms of of what moves our vehicles." that there won't be gas stations on every street corner and it yeah. won't be readily accessible. But you could probably still buy a barrel on Alibaba or Amazon and <laughs> yeah. have it show up, but it's just going to cost like, you know, like a 50-gallon drum is going to cost you like $10,000 or something.
1: Or or there will be some sort of cottage industry because there are so many millions upon millions upon millions of these vehicles. Now, the bulk of them, the, 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 the Ford Escapes and the Toyota Camrys, that nobody's going to really hold dear and they'll end up getting recycled, et cetera. But those who have very weird exotic cars sure. and motorcycles that it's are the still hobbyists. thermic yeah. that they're going to stick around because they're still cool. And can you imagine what it'd be like as a kid born in 2040, you know, 15, 20 years old in the, in the late 2100s. All right. Um, or 20, what would it be? 2000? How do we say that? It would be late. 2000s right if it was like 2065 right so there's that person now i'm about to be dead or i will have been late 21st century right 21st century um there would that would probably be a really cool thing to run into hey so-and-so is going to go start up their 1950 ferrari or hell even a 1980 300 zx or something this this piston engine thing they did what they they started vehicles with what they did they, right? It, it would be kind of a mind boggler to to approach something that's not electric or that isn't like a hydrogen based thing, and then you've got this gnarly cacophony of engine sounds and weird old shit, yeah. right? I mean, I mean,
0: truthfully, I don't think it's gonna be any different than how we view steam engines today. Yeah, no, that would like, be oh, it. Like right? we're gonna go down to the park, and then a steam engine train's gonna go by, sure. and all, oh, oh, this is how we got back. This is this built the backbone of America.
1: Um, and watching Jay Leno start his steam, like there's plenty of YouTube videos of Jay because Jay's a steam engine fanatic, right? And so he has a bunch of them. Watch a few of his, how he starts his vehicles. It's a process. It's fascinating. Absolutely. Is this something that I want to do every day? No, but it is an interesting thing for sure. Yeah. The one point I want to add, there'll be a tipping point. We've
0: talked about this before. There'll be a tipping point where synthetic gasoline, the price of which, yeah. will be more effective than what we're pumping on the ground. And we already see that like, I want to say it's like $20, 30 a barrel, or a gallon. So that's that's the future. You know, we're going to have synthetic long blockchains of hydrocarbons built in a lab maybe at some sort of volume so it's a little bit cheaper but it's going to be it's going to serve a hobbyist yeah um, um movement but i think about the future of you know what that means for the motorcycle industry though in terms of volume like motorcycles is recreation and if we're not bringing new people in because there isn't a transportation component i don't know it'll be it'll be interesting I'll be really curious to see if 50 years from now, if motorcycles are as popular as you know, steam trains are right now, which would be scary. Mm-hmm. Um, not as scary as a news topic that came out the other day, though. Quinn,
1: mm. uh, you're talking about the tie thing?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, we should we have to at least address it because it's so good. Before the show, we were just talking about the story I saw on the BBC apparently. um, Penis whitening has become a thing in Thailand, so Quint and I have obviously already booked our trip.
1: Um, <laughs> I, I I picked out a lovely shade of alabaster. I don't know about you. Oh, no. uh, I'm going with Mexican cream. <laughs> I don't I don't
0: is that racist? I don't know.
1: No, it's not. Uh, uh, but I am now. I feel like I'm appropriating culture, and that's not good. I shouldn't. This is very Portland of you. you. appropriate your culture. Because that's a real thing.
0: It is. No, it's not. Absolutely. No, it's not. It's called cultural exchange. Look it up. <laughs> cultural appropriation. I, I disagree. I think you can we're absolutely talk about this offline. There's okay. no such thing as
1: cultural appropriation.
0: <laughs> I'm telling you, as a person with a degree in sociology, yeah. there's no such thing as cultural no, appropriation. No, as a privileged
1: white male, that's no, what you'll oh say. My oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, let's the, go. The when trials and tribulations. Wait, that's a good one. We would definitely. Happy fucking New
0: Year, Quentin. <laughs> so good to have you around. Uh, what I was trying to talk about—not my dong being <laughs> bright and bright and white—but Brembo recall. This is a big thing in the industry right now. Just, Brembo, you know, no. Brembo, no. Mm-hmm. Um, a big Bremboner. Uh, Ain't <laughs> no Brembo about it. So this is something that broke just before the turn of the new year, and we're going to be dealing with it, it probably through. It broke. <laughs> Are you done? Can we move on? Are you ready? <laughs> Just get it all out. Yeah, right. Just clear your throat. <laughs> but it's going to be something that's going to percolate, I think, through the month of January as we see more brands get wrapped oh, up. In all this. right. What's
1: the start? It was Aprilia, right? So like- the
0: first the first one was Aprilia, and then the next day we saw Ducati. It only affected about 1,800, 1800 Aprilia models, I want to say, a couple years. They sold that many? Yeah. I mean, well, you know, you make that joke, but like truthfully, I've seen so many V four prillias lately. Oh, yeah. They're coming
1: on strong. They I are. feel like
0: they're they're coming finally, into their nader.
1: Finally, after all these years, people are like, Oh yeah, that is good. Right, right around the time they're gonna have to start making a redesign on those well, bikes. But sure.
0: but you can't oh we got a buddy with a who just bought a ton of V four. You can't knock it. rsv V four, can't knock it. They're excellent for sure.
1: Yeah. Other than being heavy, even then, then even
0: then I would take that detriment over all the pluses I guess. Sure. Um but what it is, is is it's the PR-16 master cylinder, but it might actually affect some others. I haven't really gotten like a clear message from Brembo because obviously Brembo doesn't really want to talk about it.
1: It's a pre- a piston inside these. It's the piston
0: inside the master cylinder. It's And so far we're seeing it's the master cylinder that's very often paired with the Brembo M50 caliper, Yeah, which is the... Super, super whammy. Until badass. this latest one that just came out has been like the the caliper to have on street bikes, street super bikes, I should say.
1: It was on the Kawasaki uh, RR, at least if not the ZX10 standard, right? Yeah, and, and it's, and it's, on, it's on, the, on all the Panigales. That's where it came. That's where it started. Was on the Panigale. It's probably on a lot of either MV Agusta any Euro anything that's like typical Brembo.
0: Yeah. Um... And and we're not quite sure how this is going to affect aftermarket pieces, whether or not there's aftermarket master yeah. cylinders that are going to be affected by this, because that that's the time the time will tell kind of aspect. And of this. they
1: sell a lot of aftermarket uh, master cylinders. i will be like people are like, well, why would you change it? Well, there's a lot of feel to be had by changing a master seal ceil- master cylinder, um, and so a lot of for many years it was like the thing to do most newer stuff you don't really have to it's pretty but, good. Yeah. but but it's a it, it it was just part of the it was kind of part of the landscape from the mid 90s on that if you wanted to have the ultimate feel on your super whammy bike whether it be a race bike or mostly let's face it mostly it was italians then you'd put on the gp style master cylinder from brembo which at the time was one of the few that had kind of a radial style piston um, arrangement. And that was a big deal. And then it was also adjustable in a few different ways, which was really cool. But since then the OEMs have gotten, they've, they've caught onto that and Brembo has made OEM style stuff. That's pretty darn good. So you don't see the, you don't see the, uh, the aftermarket that big of a deal anymore, but there are a couple of them. I think it's called RCS. Brembo has an RCS and they, they're just trick looking and they, they definitely have some, um, aspects that are better than what comes stock, but not enough to for most people to call that. They're like, if you're super rich, you put that on but it would be on long down the list of modifications to any given bike. Whereas like if you're going to race a lot of the like, Suzuki thousands have really shitty brakes, well known for having shitty brakes to the point where most people put R6 calipers on a GSX-R1000 from the mid to late 2000s. And then you put on a master cylinder, a trick master cylinder. But I, I just don't, it would be interesting to see how many of those would, how many of those have been sold or what they're saying and how they would deal with that as a, as a recall. Oh, I can't imagine, from a a brake manufacturer standpoint, what a nightmare that has to be.
0: Well, we've seen this before. We saw it with the sock suspension with the BMWs uh, a few years ago. Uh, In this case, we've seen it affect 1,800 Aprilia's 8,000 Ducatis. Uh, I'm expecting to see recalls from- This is worldwide.
1: This is America. Oh, really? Wow. Holy crap. Wow. Wow. Oh, I guess when I think about it, if it's all the M50s, we're talking about every Panigale since 2012. That's 8,000 bikes, yeah, sure. And some Multi Yeah, sure, and, sure, sure.
0: Uh, even the the Scrambler 800 Cafe Racer, which doesn't have M50s, but it does have this master cylinder. That's why, like, I'm very cautious. We had, yeah, a, it's had a question everyone. on sure. Twitter, like, what bikes does this affect? And I was like, the short answer is we don't know. The longer answer is pretty much every bike with an M50, although not necessarily every single one of them, because. This is just like the recommended master yeah. cylinder that Brembo wants to pair with that caliper. That doesn't mean manufacturers did. Yeah, it also doesn't mean that it can't be paired with a different set of sure. calipers. Sure. So, we'll we'll see. I'm expecting to see some news from KTM, maybe Triumph. Um, we, there's a couple of Japanese brands that use these calipers, that I, and you know it's hard to get a really good list of like who uses this master cylinder because most brands, when you go and look at like their technical spreadsheet, they literally just say radial master cylinder brembo radial master cylinder without giving you any sort of specification or description of well is it a 16 millimeter piston is it a 15 millimeter you know what what's the jam but at the core of this recall is the piston which is made out of a plastic but i think one of the pushbacks that people have been giving to this story is like oh they cheaped out it's a plastic part i
1: trickier than n- understand any Understand
0: that not all plastic is
1: made, created,
0: or isn't created equally. This is, so this one in particular, it's, it's PPS. It's polyphenylene sulfide, which is, in my mind, like the perfect material to put inside a master cylinder. This is a plastic that has incredibly high heat tolerances, incredibly high pressure tolerances. It, it doesn't absorb... Um, liquids that it's put in. So, you know, the hydroscopic nature of brake fluid isn't going to be affecting it. It's the perfect thing to put in the caustic fluid that brake fluid is.
1: The the key to what's inside brake systems is heat, right? It's going to have to deal with heat. Even up to the master cylinder, it's going to have to deal with heat. And it has to deal with what is probably one of the worst chemicals in on a motorcycle, in a motor vehicle, which Absolutely. is brake fluid. It's really bad the reason it's bad is cuz it has to not compress. And you would think that would be and not not compress and not evaporate. <laughs> there it's a really strange thing to have the like, why hydraulic fluid is the way it is and what what it is and how it works and what what the specifics are for brake systems, hydraulic brake systems because of the heat, right? The same hydraulic fluid that's operating a a piston that's that's lifting a uh, a front-end loader or a backhoe is a completely different use case than this stuff. So it has to be, uh, as I always say, a methyl ethyl death, right? And it's bad. You don't want to get it on your hands. You don't want to get it anywhere near your skin, your body, your eyes, everything. It's really bad shit. Ugh, I, I, it's gross thinking about it. But that that's where this has to live. And it can't grow. So a piston, that's one thing. Dissimilar metals, uh, you, if it gets hot, it can't grow faster than the thing around it that's a very critical thing with pistons in general um, and i would imagine up there it's not as critical but that's part of it right so yeah. it, has to, it has to maintain its dimensional accuracy through all of this shit which is a big deal it can't swell it can't do anything funky so yeah it'd be interesting to know what did they have to replace it with and Re- ha- are they replacing whole master cylinders or just this piston well, I think the the fix for the recall, it
0: sounds like, is they're going to replace the master cylinder because I think that's just the easiest thing for Brembo to Probably do so. for the brands. Um, it would
1: freak me out to know that technicians would have to be disassembling the yeah. master cylinders, yet you're introducing more potential failure modes on a on a critical system, right? A critical system that I wouldn't want to... It may be one thing if it was a throttle. Yeah, it's a critical system, and there's some danger there, but you can replace, re, remove and reinstall a component of a throttle system you better be able to do that as a technician. Whereas the brake thing, there's so many different failure modes that are, can be introduced by a human being having to go in and R and R that piston. Oof, I wouldn't want that. A lot of finicky little things, little clips, et cetera. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so, so we
1: probably should have front loaded this at the beginning of this conversation. But the
0: the issue is that this this plastic, this PPS piston, through its the man, there's a defect in the manufacturing process that again, when they extrude the plastic that can cause. Um, some porosity in, in the final product and that then creates this opportunity for the piston to crack under extreme use and they're basically saying under race usage under heavy abs usage and um if the bike tips over and falls on the master cylinder side it could you know that impact could hmm. damage and cause this crack if the piston cracks the brakes basically fail so you go into a turn you have no brakes that's a bad deal uh it sounds like it was discovered on a few ducati motorcycles in europe it sounds like there was three separate incidents in uh, europe i think they were all on the racetrack where this this failure mode happened ducati with brembo examined it and realized what was going on and then the recall happened for all brands or it was going to happen for all brands that use this this master cylinder and the fix um i mean they're going to go back to an aluminum piston which is interesting. Yeah. Um. So I don't like you know you go back to talking about like the the different metals and the yeah. expansions and you're like I don't know
1: how aluminum works in that application. Obviously, I'm sure it works fine. Not but here's it. what they have to do: is the the machining is going to have to be perfect, and the anodizing or whatever coating they're going to put on has to be perfect. It probably costs a lot of money. Uh, that's uh, sure the plastic is probably cheaper. Maybe not though, right in this in this level, I bet it's six and two threes. it's just w- whatever was easiest to get or source. Would't you love to be a fly on a wall at the Brembo factory to understand it but you know what what can you do if if they've determined that this is the way to do it great if if it's all if it's getting to this point now, I can say that this probably the the start of this probably happened years ago, right? you get one failure like that. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to diagnose that? I mean, everybody's like, oh, well, you'd find a cracked piston. It's like, well, that's unheard of. It was so difficult. Somebody d- crashes a bike and blames, oh, I didn't have any brakes. And you're like, bullshit. Right. And most Did of the time. Did you bleed your brakes? And most of the was time. That's error. The thing. And in most of the time, it's rider error. So and most of the time, this is the real the key to this, is that by the time the bike is crashed, then all of the crash pieces and often the master cylinders are one of the first things to go then you would say, oh, well, it, that was damage caused. And if, even right. if the piston was cracked, they're like, oh, well, that, what can you do? It got hit at 50 miles an hour hitting a solid object. So of course it's going to break. What, what, whatever. Then they would have to see repeat of that, and then they have to say, ooh, potentially have a problem. So very complicated, very time-consuming. So My guess is that it's been years coming, so they've had to not only get to the point where they, uh, they acknowledge that there's a failure mode, but then that they have to redesign it, which takes a lot of testing. So it could have been a year's worth of testing to get into it to make it right. Gnarly, fucking gnarly, and that's that's a big deal for sure.
0: Yeah, it's going to affect a lot of a lot of bikes, and um, we shall see how it all plays out. You know, we've seen other recalls like this where brands come out kind of ahead because they do a really good job of of mitigating and taking care of their customers. Uh, we talked about the Yamaha recall, I think one of our in one of our earlier days yeah, podcast. Sure. We've talked about the BMW recalls, so. I'm going to
1: be curious to see how this all plays out. Um, They're doing a good job. If they will, it would be just like the <clears throat> Omaha recall and just like the BMW recalls. They do such a good job of covering it that people don't lose faith in the brand. They suffer through the inconvenience and they get it done. And I mean, have you heard one person say, I'm not buying an R1 because there was a recall on it? I've never heard anybody say anything like that. I've heard people complain, well, I'm not buying an R1 because the cranks break. No, but that's in, you know, race situations. And I've heard a lot of it because I'm in the industry and I'm around a lot of racers that have had their cranks break. But me knowing better that a lot of that could probably be down to poor engine assembly or uh, lack of mechanical sympathy on the rider's point, whatever the thing is, I don't trust that as a, oh, all Yamahas are shit. So the same goes with BMW. All BMWs have a raft of issues, but as long as they take care of them, the customers don't seem to to mind, right? The only thing that's different here
0: is, it'll be different brands dealing with the recall. Yeah, that'll be interesting so to see. So it'll be Aprilia having to deal with Brembo's yeah, issue. But it'll that's be Ducati good. having to deal with it's Brembo's issue. It's good because everybody's K- going to yeah. have to
1: be at least as good as the best person. So if Aprilia is handling it quickly and easily and paying the dealers a lot to do the thing and making sure they're getting paid retail on the part and whatever the, whatever the things are that they could fudge or screw with, which you really can't with a recall... If they're the high mark, then everybody else is going to have to come up to that. So uh, it's strange that so this is one of the few times Hopefully. where the market actually will dictate it because it's a cross manufacturer recall. It's not that common. It's interesting. Some, similar to the, uh, the airbag recall on cars. I don't right. know if you remember that. Takata, yeah. Takata, Takara, whatever my, my it was. My Toyota had that too, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people have had to deal with that, and I... Um. Don't I, I think that was held, well dealt with very well across brands, and everybody had to manage it, right? Yeah, I mean, to put that company out of business too, though. Well, <laughs> then that's just, that's fair enough. That then that highlights that company as being a problem. And I think the bigger issue with the Takata recall was the sheer
0: volume. Yeah, of it. there was just it just millions and millions of cars, and it's going to cost thousands of dollars for each one. Yeah, and there's just no recovery from that. Whereas like. Something like Dieselgate with Volkswagen where it's yeah. like, yeah, we did some shit. It's going to cost like $18 billion yeah, later, it's though. It's going to cost us like $20 billion, but we make like $30 billion a year, so no big deal. I think that's the difference. Um, but yeah, you know, I'll be very curious to see. I'll be very curious to see. And I'm, I think we still have a couple more brands to come out of the woodwork that I'm expecting to hear from. Um, this is a recall that I've known about for about a month and been having to do research and dig around on. So it's good to... Finally, see it come to light. The Bothan spy network is strong. Yeah, it's good.
1: So you got some early on stuff saying, "Hey, this might be happening." Hey, go dig. Yeah, so you yeah. dug. Were you the one that broke the story? Not really, because Aprilia brought it out. No, you- I, I
0: waited until the recall came out just to just to make sure there was accuracy. But I think we were we were the only publication that picked up. Like I think everyone else at the time just republished yeah. the Nitsa thing, which is like. 200 words and no sure. information whatsoever. We were the only publication. I was like, this isn't just like an Aprilia. Cause it was Aprilia that came out first with it. Yeah. Like this isn't an Aprilia break recall. This is a massive Brembo master cylinder recall. And we expect this, this and this to happen. And the next day, sure enough, Ducati comes out and we, we're still waiting for at the time of this recording for other brands to come out, but I, I'm pretty confident we'll see a couple more. Not to Brembo's. Not to Brembo's too much. <laughs> um, so, and you know, we did a little bit more digging on the the NHTSA documents than I think most people do. So. Sure. There is that. Uh, you want to move along? Oh, yeah. This one, I think, I don't know how much of a conversation we're going to have about it. I just think it's really interesting. Honda is going to have a factory-backed a- Team HRC endurance team at Suzuka this year.
1: And they haven't? They had- have
0: in the past. They They've... Been very content to let kind of like factory supported teams,
1: yeah, FCC, do the
0: FCC, yep. Musashi, Musashi. Um, those are usually like the two big ones, and those are the ones where you see kind of big Honda's name. World Superbike yeah. or MotoGP riders, you know, filling in along with a couple like maybe Japanese huh. Superbike specialists. But this
1: is going to be like r- like Honda livery, Honda HRC fr- since, team since HRC. I wonder when the last time they actually did. Was it seven stars back in the? I know because that would have been. that would have been the mid two thousands. It makes you wonder when the last time H did they say? Yeah, I think I've got it. If I can find it. Because the seven stars livery was just a black bike with literally seven stars on it, and they always they used to do eleven was the number because um in the and it's kind of a weird thing in the, uh, the way they look at the numbers eleven is one one. And so they would have the the fastest of whoever was the number one and number one. So 11 ends up being the one with the most cachet, right? I think maybe even when uh, Rossi and Colin Edwards rode um, that they were 11, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I can't find when the last time they did
0: it for Suzuka. But a part of this announcement was the fact that they were also going to have an HRC team in the all Japan Superbike series. And they haven't. And that's the first time they've done it in 10 years.
1: Huh. Interesting. So it's them getting a little serious about like their home turf. And making that bike work better so that, that it works better at, at a, a higher level. It just needs to work better. There's right? there's no excuses at this point. Right? Yeah, for sure. And I
0: think that might be part of maybe the impetus where it's like, okay, you guys
1: aren't doing a good enough job maybe. Big time, daddy, time big time daddy big Honda guns. HRC is going to come in and do it. And this is the type of thing like I was saying earlier in the show about the RC51 being expensive. The RC51 full superbike had aluminum cam drive gears, like one race only level shit, and a fuel injection system that was bespoke, and a pump system that evacuated the crankcase of air, and so much tr- dripping trickery that most people don't even know. And that's the level they had to get to to beat the world. And they would, even with this quasi-compromised thing, being a, a twin racing against the four-cylinders. Now... they i've got something you know if you look at all of the numbers that bike should still be pretty fast that engine should be making plenty of power the chassis should be good because it's light etc 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 so i i maintain that i think that bike is a is a world beater but the question is is how much it's money right they're deciding okay we're gonna have to put some more money into it or maybe they're just feeding into the next they're feeding into the next v4 right (laughs) Might be next year when they come out with a V4 and they're just getting their teams set up. I don't know. I don't. I doubt that. But
0: well, I think part of it too. I don't. I don't follow the Japanese Superbike Championship close enough. The All Japan Championship close enough to, to speak intelligently on that. But I do know Suzuka and Yamaha has won the last three years in a row at at Honda's home turf at Honda's home turf at a race that Honda has run. So they've been. There's been forty runnings of the suzuka eight hours honda has won 27 of them yeah this is a race that honda is used to winning and in recent years that's been challenged we've seen the suzuki teams do well we've seen this yamaha factory team again a factory yamaha team not a yeah you know proxy war yep factory supported team yamaha racing different what do they call it? Yamaha Endurance Racing. I forget the f- Yamaha Factory Racing team, like literally the name. Yeah. Um. So I think they're kind of like answering that call, like, oh, so you guys are gonna come in and you are gonna bring your GP riders and it's gonna be a factory effort straight out of Iwata. Okay, we will answer that challenge because we are Honda and this is for honor and this is our home course. We own. They literally own the, the track. I am surprised it's taken this long. A little surprised. I think. I think. Well, I think there's a lot of things at HRC, but uh, I think it's waking up a little bit to the neglect that has come to its racing programs. Yeah.
1: Well, they, a lot of them, and Ducati in the same way, rest on the laurels of their GP program. As long as they're winning GPs, they're pretty happy, right? They're like, well, yeah. Th- I think, I think, I think in the hierarchy of things, for for Honda, the
0: priority would be winning MotoGP is one. Winning all Japan Superbike is two. And winning Suzuka is three, and maybe two and three could be interchanged. And then, like maybe under that is like World Superbike, Superbike. yeah. Um, and that's just on the road side. I, I don't get into the dirt yeah. politics, but yeah, I get it. You know, that would be that would be how I read that. So as long as Mark as long as Mark Marquez keeps winning like races, I feel like Honda's fairly satiated. But I think they're like we need to start racking up some wins in in all Japan Superbike and and in Suzuka. Like that's we should at least be doing that. If we're not gonna go win World Superbike, we at least have to do these.
1: Next, they got to figure out their Formula One engine because it's been a bad deal. Formula None. Yeah. That's painful. All right. Uh, buh, 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 buh. My next
0: thing is Envy Augusta finally bought back, bought back its stock from Mercedes-AMG. So now it's all Rusky controlled? Well, oh, I love this press release. I love this press release, the way it was, <laughs> it, was it was worded. They said something like, "MV is now 100% owned by MV Augusta Holdings," which makes it sound like, "Oh, the company like owns. Oh, it's Italian. MV Augusta Holdings owns MV Augusta." Understand that MV Augusta Holdings is jointly owned by. I'm gonna have to look at my notes because this is like a, a total rat it's a race mishmash. A mess. MV Augusta Holdings is co-owned by Comsar Invest and GC Holdings. GC Holding being Giovanni castiglione Holdings, (laughs) so which he is a one hundred percent shareholder. So so it's it's the younger castiglione Giovanni, him co owning it with GC Comstar, which is the which is a holding company for For Blackwater for the Black Black Ocean Ocean, Group,
1: which is the Russian,
0: which is the Russian guy. It's a Russian guy and a a British guy, but mostly the Russian guy um so is jared kushner in here anywhere there's something i think i think trump owns MV Agusta. oh yeah good well, wow. that's that's one thing that's going to come out in the, the mueller investigation <laughs> is how trump stealthily bought mvagusta <laughs> um and making they're making Augusta great again
1: why that dragster has all the gold and looks gaudy right that's it it's gonna be the trump dragster <laughs> so that'll be interesting <laughs> Um,
0: but it, it's an interesting. This is this is a divorce that was like messy and long, and you know it's finally finished. So I think it's it's good in the sense like the the pairing of MV Augusta and, and AMG kind of sounded good at the start, and then I think the Germans got in there and they realized like what a rat's nest they invested <laughs> in, yeah, and they're like oh no, because as soon as like as soon as it started, it started going downhill. They did like one or two cross promotional marketing events. I sure. think they were putting MV Augusta bikes in, in Mercedes dealerships in Europe as kind of like a sure. cross thing. And then after that, just, just stopped.
1: I wonder if, uh, speaking of F1, I wonder if Lewis Hamilton is still going to get to be involved because, you know, as a Mercedes Formula One driver yeah that was one of the things i think he was allowed to screw with because of this that's what i'm assuming
0: and i don't think i've seen a lot of events with envy and lewis hamilton doing doing promotional stuff as a brand ambassador but i don't think i've seen any post this announcement Yeah.
1: so that'll be that'll be the tell sure
0: that'll be the tell sure
1: but it's interesting for me to think about this relative to the amg involvement with ducati back in what is it 2010 and 11 when they were playing together and I had to do a, a press event. It wasn't even a press event. It was a internal Ducati deal where we had the president of AMG or CEO of AMG came down and we had the, the new Diavel at the time. So this would have been in late 10 or early it was 11. AMG Diavel, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, this was before even that. Oh, okay. So this was a thing where we did a, a press intro video at not Neptune's net but one of the one of the uh fish restaurants the the seafood restaurants right on Pacific Coast Highway at Sunset and PCH and we did this video and we had to get Melissa Paris and Melissa Paris couldn't talk about riding the bike because Melissa was in, involved with Yamaha at the time this is many years ago but it was a really fun deal to get Melissa to because there was an actress that had to, that, that was involved with making this video and then the video got played at the uh at the LA Auto Show. It was a strange thing. And I'm just thinking back to that time and how there was just like this in-bed deal. Then they made the Diavel AMG, which was trick and had a bunch of carbon stuff and v- bespoke wheels. And it was a well, it's probably one of the rarest Ducatis. If, if you are a, a Ducati first drink, if you are a Ducati aficionado, you're going to be taking a few gulps. But if you were really good, you'd you'd buy a uh, 748E or the, the uh, or L, whatever the uh neiman marcus 748 is silver rare and this amg diavel rare
0: and the um what was one that just came out diesel no no, no the the multistrada enduro pro oh yeah even small fewer, small amounts fewer of those than the super leggera
1: huh wow interesting i think only like 100 or or sure so came to the u.s there, there's a few of these out there that you'd really have to to nail down because some of them get lost in the shuffle, and most people don't give a shit about Diavols because they're awful. So the DM, oh, they, I don't say they're awful. No, they're awful. The, <laughs> so the AMG Diavel, we've got a lot
0: to talk about after the show, <laughs> right? Right,
1: sure. So um that the AMG Diavel actually did look good; it had some sweet parts on it. But then it disappeared, and then Audi bottom like like that year, like it was 2012, right, or whatever it was. It was like all of a sudden going from. Teutonic German to another Teutonic German, all in one fell swoop. Like, wow, very interesting power play there. And I think that's how the AMG
0: deal came about for MV. I think Volkswagen came in with their big swing in German deck <laughs> and was like, "Nope, that's ours." And then uh, Mercedes was just like, "Oh, okay. Um, oh, well, there's another Italian brand that makes, yeah, you know, like kind of iconic. We liked doing superbank. this thing with Ducati. Uh, Maybe this will work, yeah, sure. work out. Yeah, this will work out." And then they bought, was it 20 or 25% of the stake? Was it that much? I should know this off the top of my head. And then
1: they were like, holy shit, what did we get ourselves into? They took 25% of the company.
0: And I think, um, I forget, I think they were saying they got roughly, they they bought it for about 30 million euros. And I think they got in and they're like, oh. (laughs) So complete shitbox, okay? And then this creates kind of like an albatross around... MV Augusta's neck, as it were. And I, I, I've toyed with the idea of writing a story about how, in a way, the Mercedes-AMG deal with MV Augusta was both the best and worst thing to happen to that brand. It was great because it was money. And to it AMG was or to MV? To MV. Yeah. Because uh, it was great because it brought MV money. It brought them a strong partner. They did some cross-marketing. But in a way also, having this 25% stake and there was like a uh, – I mean at that point like there just wasn't any more room in MV Augusta for them to take on other financing and AMG became I mean the relationship was so sour they're were like we're not putting another nickel into your company because it is a mess like we're just not going to get that nickel back. That ah, nickel back. Gross. Gross. <laughs> um but that then created this situation where MV couldn't take on any more capital. And they really, you know, during a time when they had such a cash flow issue, it wasn't that necessarily the bikes weren't selling. It wasn't necessarily that they weren't growing. They had just like this cash flow issue that was in a way precipitated by their AMG ownership hmm. being able to like yeah. – like, you couldn't take on any more cash. So this is kind of like this weird kind of thing and you know at the end of the day I throw it all at the feet of of Giovanni Castiglione because he's the guy in charge but that's a component of it that's that was part of that problem and that's why getting rid of AMG and bringing in the Black ocean, bringing in the Black ocean group was so kind of integral to getting MV Augusta back on its feet. So like in a way, this news is kind of like the the rebirth of MV Augusta. You know, there's no excuses at this point.
1: It's not afterbirth.
0: You know, uh, <laughs> it's easy to be cynical. I, I really like this brand. I think they make some really good bikes. That's true. The part of this announcement was also that they're going to come out with their first new four-cylinder bike in a long, long while. Yeah. It'll be a Brutale 1200, um, which isn't quite the bike that I would like to see from them, but it makes a lot of sense. So I feel like they're getting their feet underneath them. They're making some really intriguing bikes. The quality is getting a lot better. The dealership network is getting stronger, albeit slowly. But things are starting to kind of turn around. And I want to see good things. It's like MV makes, like we were talking earlier in the show, they make some of the most beautiful bikes. Yeah, sure. And MV, if you haven't seen an MV Agusta F4, one of the 750cc models, I mean, you're missing out on, I would say, the most beautiful motorcycle ever built. This is a motorcycle they put in the Guggenheim. Yeah. So. it's
1: true and it was really it was tamburini's successor to the 916 which is a close if not uh, equivalent beautiful machine right it was what was gonna be but Castiglione and and tamburini kind of did their own thing and he moved over and he did that and it was great right so can't can't beat it and it kind of I like the fact that it's not the next Ducati even though it's probably what the 999 ended up being <laughs> but you know whatever it's 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 It adds more to the space to have different manufacturers with good-looking bikes, and I think it's good.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, do you want to talk about the thing we were talking about before the show, or do you want to take a
1: listener question? Let's do a listener question. Okay. You guys
0: will never know what we talked about before the show.
1: They yeah, will. We'll, I mean, other than the we'll, tight we'll... penis whitening thing. Oh, yeah, right? Yeah. You know. Alabaster, even. Alabaster. <laughs> You're an alabaster. Uh
0: so this this question comes to us. We didn't get an audio version. We got a we got a Facebook version, but it's it's from listener Andy Shaw and it's Shaw p- as if Pasha um and just my guess would be he's quite British. That's my guess. I mean, right-o. righto. Righto. Righto, old chap.
1: I hope you leave sometime you leave your but up up ups in there. I don't I can't remember hearing one. Stop it. Um, Uh, Yeah.
0: Now it's in your head. It's a little long, so I'll I'll boil it down. Um, It was in response to, I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast or if I talked about it on ENR, but there was this Honda that came out for the Nigerian market. It cost something like the equivalent of $870 US.
1: Did you have to buy it from a prince via email? I did get an
0: extremely lucrative offer via email for it. Yeah. Um, haven't seen that work out yet. My bike isn't here yet, but that, but what we're going to talk That's about close. might be the reason why. Yeah. But it was this idea. Like, I mean, I understand like an $800 motorcycle from Honda, like, and this was like the, the way they pitched it in the Nigerian market was, this is for Nigerian businessmen. This was the proper sophisticated motorcycle when you're commuting to work.
1: And it costs $5 billion Nigerian dollars. Is, uh, is that one of the countries that has the bizarro, super hyperinflated currency? You know what I'm saying? Isn't that a common thing for those, some of those banana republics to have like, you know, a dollar worth at like one tenth of one tenth of one tenth of one cent because of bizarre? No, I
0: don't know if it's that bad, but uh, okay. let's put it this way. A thousand U.S. dollars is 360,000 Nigerian Naira. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right.
1: Okay, so it's it's it, a little it's no worse than the yen or or the peso or whatever. I don't even know what the conversion on pesos is. This is how it, you were just in Mexico. Yeah, you know, it's similar. It's not like that, but it's you know it's, it's, it's you yeah. It's not like like India where like
0: they just automatically they put a, a multiple a one thousand multiple in front of their the, the lock. They'll they'll say something costs like uh, seven thousand lock or seven lock. And it's really 7 million rupees.
1: Huh? Like, like
0: that's how it's so hyperinflated. That we, 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 yeah. we have like a,
1: I guess that's what I mean. Like hundred
0: Benjamins.
1: Yeah. I would assume that that would be that way, but okay, fair enough. So that, that thousand dollars in U S. If little I bit take cheaper. that thousand dollars there and I have 370,000. So let's call it 300,000 Nigerian dollars. Nigerian dollars. I can go buy this bike. Right. Okay.
0: And it's, and it's it's old and it's got drum brakes and it's nothing yeah, yeah, special, sure, but sure. it's a bike. And and it says Honda on it. It's not branded as nope, a Yep. It's yep. a Honda bike. Um the interesting thing though, and this was the, the point that Andy brought up, was like these bikes that are so cheap why why are, I guess the point is these bikes that are so cheap in in third world markets or, or other markets, developing markets, why are they then so expensive here? Because like you know, I think one of the points I brought up was like, you know, wow, an eight hundred dollar bike in the US hipsters would go crazy for it. Like this would be a great bike to get new young riders on, like an affordable, like can you imagine being able to buy a new motorcycle, like a proper new motorcycle, not the newest technology, but it gets it done for 800 bucks. Hmm. That would slay from, from Honda, not from like some weird yeah, yeah. Chinese brand, yeah, sure, sure. not from something you never heard of. You go down to your Honda dealer, your reputable Honda dealer that's selling you fire and gold wings. And CRF dirt bikes and here's this $800 proper I think it was like 500 600 cc or something I have to look Well I at guess that's the
1: my next question is like okay what is it really cuz a lot of these bikes can be many different forms I, I, so I, if it's a super cheap indian honda engine cuz they make a lot of the a very specific style of engine in india fair enough and if it's a 125 that's one thing, but if it's a six hundred, even if it's a single, if you're saying drum brakes, that is a bit of an interesting thing. It's like, well, does it stop? Okay, I mean, I guess that's why it's a one. It's a one ten. Okay, but still, well, I'd want. it. Does it have nineteen inch or wheels or twenty one inch wheels? Or does it have? Is it a big size? Quentin, look at, Quentin. it's 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 like eight hundred bucks. Who cares? Well, Who cares? well, but if you're saying it's eight hundred bucks and it was a mini bike, if you're going to go no, no, it's buy a full, it's a full size bike. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't know until you. Right, I'm not sure, but that, that it is interesting. Eight hundred bucks. Could you sell that here? I don't know. I guess it would. I've uh,
0: seen hipster people in Portland buy used bikes that are in worse condition with worse specs for more money. Let's yeah, put it that way. I agree. But the point coming back to looking at bikes like the Honda Grom, and that's that's made in Southeast Asia. And how much they retail for there? This is kind of what Andy's trying to bring up. You know, like when you bring them to the U.S. market and for the British market, why are they twice as much? That that's basically the crux of his question.
1: Why are these bikes so cheap over there but so expensive over here? Because you don't have to do anything. To them. You don't have to do any. They don't have to have any support. You don't have to, you probably don't have to t- put a tape measure between the reflectors to make sure it's the right. All the regulations and all the things that you have to pass, EPA, DOT, you would imagine Honda would have that and it wouldn't cost that much to do in the United States, though, to actually get through. If you're already Honda, you already have that stuff stamped and done pretty quickly. And if you know you're going to sell X amount of thousands of them, then you just amortize that across the cost and you're like, yeah, let's sell them for a thousand bucks, right? Why not? Yeah. yeah there,
0: I, my response is there's there's a lot of reasons and you just brought up some really good ones. The fact that like the Nigerian market probably isn't as worried about certain items
1: on and, the motorcycle in the American market. It's motorcycle. an assumption. It could be completely wrong, but that is an assumption and I would I would assume that. Well, they're get, certainly not
0: as worried about the emissions. They're certainly not as worried no, about the noise, sure. now the reflectors and the blinkers and all that, the headlight, Yeah, I don't know. But I also look at from so if it's you know, like, like I think the Grom is a great example of like why it's cheaper in Southeast Asia than it is here. It's like, well, because first of all, you got to put it on a boat and ship it to here. Yep, and that has a cost. Sure, uh, if you're dealing—that's
1: where it's being made. These bikes aren't being made in Nigeria.
0: All right, uh, I can't remember off the top of, my head. but that would be the thing. But that, This is a larger, the larger issue. I'm not sure. just talking about the Nigerian bike at got this it. point. But you know, if you look at like like the Grom is a great example. So not only you're going to have to ship it from Southeast Asia to let's say England, and that's going to cost. You know, you're going to have to go around Africa. It's going to be a whole thing. That's going to cost a billion
1: rupees. Right.
0: Um, But then on top of that, actually, I guess I go through the Suez Canal, wouldn't it? That's a whole other thing. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to slap value added tax on top of it, which is like 20, 30%. And it's the same thing with the U.S. And this was one of the things that why, in a lot of ways, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, was actually kind of a good thing for the motorcycle industry it helped bring in like these lower, these tariffs across both countries. And like that would make things a lot cheaper. But you know, if like you're going to you know, export something out of, you know, let's, let's say Thailand, it's probably going to get slapped with some sort of tariff when it comes into the United States or, or, or you know, England or the yeah. European union. I'd have to go and look at the tariff charts sure. to understand what that is. I don't think, I think for us it's only like 10% or something like that to come from Southeast Asia, but I'd have to double check it. But I mean, it is of note. You know, like that's going to add something on. Then you got to tack on the currency exchange, and then I think some of it comes down to just good old economics, supply and demand. Um, there's not a lot of eight hundred dollar bikes in the U.S., so I can charge a thousand. Because there's just sure, who am I competing with? There's no one forcing. There's no competitor forcing me to have a cheaper price. Yeah. And when a Grom comes out, and it's only like what, like like three thousand thirty two hundred dollars, that sounds cheap. You know that sounds like a cheap price, even though they might go for a thousand dollars in in Malaysia. So,
1: and you think they would if Honda said, "Hey, why don't we sell this drum-braked, small CC but big-sized bike in the U.S.?" Um, we're gonna have to put make a parts system. We have to. This is something I, I think about is having the parts in the United States on hand. There's a cost of that going through all the legal mumbo jumbo. There's a cost of that getting the getting it to the dealers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but even if it was a thousand, and it makes sense that you could do that from a costing point, you usually try and quadruple the material cost. You're probably stamping the same stampings that they've been stamping for 30 years. So the cost of actually making the bikes, probably not that much. Would, would it just dumb down the rest of the brand if you had such a cheap bike? Would that make it seem like most people like well the jump from that thousand dollar bike to the thirty five hundred dollar Grom is a bit like what the hell if you're making this then why can't that VFR eight hundred be six thousand instead of twelve or whatever it is I don't know probably because you're not selling like a million of them yeah well sure and that's the question is like if they could if there was a market are they just that blind to it or are all these things we're talking about would it mean that that bike really would be about $3500 which is probably the case and it'd be interesting to talk to a Honda bean counter to to find out
0: I'm really curious I'm on Honda's website right now do they even sell the Honda Cub in the US still I don't know I don't know either
1: the cub or the uh, the, the the super cub
0: you know Like the bike that they've literally made like a billion of.
1: Yeah, I don't don't know. I don't think so. I don't think they do. I think it's the, I'm looking
0: at the Ruckus, PCX, Metropolitan. I find that really interesting because, you know, that, I mean, it's literally the model that you meet the nicest people on. Yeah. And that whole kind of revolution for motorcycles for the mainstream.
1: Stamp, stamp, stamp. They've been making them for 60 years or 40 years or well, whatever. Well, that, that's
0: the thing that I find interesting where it's like, that is a bike that you're literally making millions of. The costs of the tooling and the production and the design have been so thoroughly amortized over yeah. the millions of these bikes that you've created that they are so, so very, very cheap to create. You stamp and it. you're, you're almost it. getting
1: pure profit every
0: time you yeah. stamp one. Yeah. And you're out. doing it in markets where it's super cheap to do manufacturing, anyways. And this idea that like that you don't bring something like that to a market like the U.S. I think is a little interesting. You know, I'm looking at the Ruckus is 2,700 base MSRP. The Metropolitan's 25. So the cheapest Honda two wheeler you can get on is 2,500 bucks.
1: Those are scooters, though. Those are scooters.
0: Well, no, I mean like, real motorcycles. Street bikes. Well, eh. we we like to divvy that up a, a, as motorcyclists. Two wheels is two wheels is two wheels. I think to the layman. So you know why why isn't there like a eight hundred dollar Honda Super Cub option for the U.S. market when you're you know when you're stamping them out
1: like like candy in in developing nations? Didn't they just say they're going to start making the monkey for the U.S. market again? Well, they're looking at it. You so know? this uh, this comes to that conversation. It's like, well, if you're going to make a monkey, then could you just redo that Super Cub or Dream or whatever that thing is that I'm thinking of that you're talking about? I don't I don't know. I don't know. Man. I don't know what the market is, but we're at the stage where we kind of need that. Like well, that,
0: that's kind of what I'm saying, right? Like that, you know, it kind of goes counter to my, my comment at the very beginning of the show about, you know, the future might be just recreation, not transportation. Sure. But there is that like idea of, you know, if there was like a $800 Honda two-wheeler that you could buy, that would open up a lot of doors for motorcycling in the U.S that it, would that would make that would remove a very a very big part of the barrier to getting new riders on bikes and and that was one of the things I was talking to uh a friend of ours actually the other day during during taco time was this idea like to get into motorcycles like not only do you have to buy the multi thousand dollar vehicle but then you got to spend like the 1000 you got to get the helmet the gla- the gloves the jacket and like, all the stickers to put on stuff all the, the stuff. stickers <laughs> You know, it's, it, it's a whole thing. It's a pretty high barrier to entry. But if you can lower one of those barriers, and if you can make it something that's that's has a little more perception of safety, like like a Honda Cub, yeah. Super Cub has, where it's like, I don't need to get the big, you know, knee dragger jacket, but like jeans, boots, maybe some gloves and a sturdy jacket and a helmet. And I, and I feel like I'm fine for, for 25 mile an hour urban commuting. Maybe that starts changing some things.
1: I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Hmm. I agree. I think that it could be. It could be that we keep thinking of small bikes as 300 to 500cc singles and twins that are sport bikey, When we were talking about entry, quote unquote, entry level, when what we really need is super entry level, like really, really small. $800, and you're getting into uh, a Nintendo Switch and a TV you're level getting, of don't even cost. think Don't even think about it in that way. Think about it. That is the
0: cost of a decent e-bike. Yeah, which are kind of a thing now in urban communities. I
1: mean, a cheap, cheap e bike. Uh, yeah, like not even, not, fuck. Right? That's a good e bike. Oh my gosh, they're probably thirty five, four thousand right. dollars for a basis, not right. that technically savvy one. Yeah, huh? So hmm. I was down at the local hipster bar in my neighborhood the other day, and some
0: guys showed up on a fifty cc moped, and, and like his, he and his friends were geeking out over how cool this thing was. Now he had removed the pedals, so it was basically. It actually, truthfully, it looked just like a, a Honda Super Cub. Yeah, um, I don't know if it was a Honda model or not, but sure. it had that that look because he he mopeded it. Yeah,
1: and it was essentially a 50cc. And this is a common scooter. thing in Portland. This is a big deal here. There's a lot of there's a there's actually a uh, a group of people. I think they call them the Puddle Cutters. Yeah, it's a it's a club, right? And so the, I haven't heard about the club,
0: but I've definitely seen them at the yep. Mac Track when I go do supermoto. There's yep. usually three or four. Oh, these guys, and they're like rebuilding engines in between sections. Oh, yeah, they're
1: gnarly. Little engines are all like 50 to 80 cc's maybe. And there's part of me that's like, oh, because I hate scooters, but those are not scooters. And the way they sometimes make them like little road racers, yeah. there's part of me that's like, okay, that's kind of cool. I, I would totally have a go on one. Whereas somebody, I see somebody on a Lambretta or Vespa that's all tricked out. I don't have any desire. Even though I know it's like a 200 cc fire-breathing two-stroke, and I bet it's Hall's ass. I don't have any, like, no, like, feeling of, oh, I really want to ride that. Whereas one of these goes by on I even, and it's going 20 miles an hour, but it sounds like it's going 80. <laughs> it's I'm like, mosquito I've ever seen. Yeah, right. It looks like it's uh, bizarrely fun, and I'd be totally down for that. Yeah, for sure.
0: It's a thing. It's interesting to see. And it's interesting to see that's kind of a part of the cultural zeitgeist, that it's kind of on trend. And I don't feel like it's something that manufacturers are. Um giving any any power not yet, too, or but maybe or any maybe sort of that's a
1: thing, too. right? maybe that's a thing, and this is something that Alta isn't struggling with but is thinking about.' It's like, okay, what other than? Uh, what we've got as far as dirt bike, like what can right. we... And I hear it a lot. Of, a lot of people ask us, when are you going to make a mini bike? When are you going to make a smaller bike? We want a mini bike. Well We get this a lot at all the trade shows. Really? Like, yeah, surprisingly. Mainly because there are uh, a bunch of electric dirt bikes that are like trials bikes for kids, trials-ish. Like the Aussitt. The offsets, right? They look like trials bikes and they're intended to be trials, but really they're just a small bike for kids, right? But yeah. in the end, what most people use them for is is just having a little electric bike for your toddler or a little bit older than toddler. So for us it's like oh if if we had the bandwidth holy crap it would be wonderful because then we could get them young like KTM has done with and all their 50cc the bikes, right? It's amazing and they can grow these kids up, right? From 50cc's on up, they know to ride orange. They have it in their heads that the orange is good. They that's what they had when they were kids, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that would be awesome. And hopefully we get to the point where we have enough bandwidth to do that. And we've got to focus on what we got for now. But we are getting a lot of people say it, for sure.
0: Hmm. It's interesting. I, I, I wouldn't see that as like the next move for Alta.
1: No, 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 no. But it it's part of the 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 the
0: thing that's that we have mis- to look at. Yeah, that's when you're an established motorcycle brand with twelve other bikes in your lineup and you're hitting all the segments. Now you need to bring people in
1: to get there. Possibly to get there. I don't know if I'd say at twelve, but I'd say if we had five more or the next iteration of the bike a few years down the line and we had we, we could grow that at the same time, I think that would be awesome. But again, you can only you're only so big and you only have so much engineering bandwidth to be able to utilize. Uh, being a startup, you know, so I can't imagine. Whereas I can see Honda, absolutely. Honda Stamp for them sure. out. Yeah. Stamp them out. Done. Right. No, I'm not even saying electric. I'm saying gas. I'm saying whatever. Small bikes. Oh, we already have that platform. We've had it for 30 years. Let's rejuvenate it. Right. If they don't have to make it Euro 4 legal or worry about carb or whatever the thing is. Right. Because a lot of under 50cc stuff, you can do whatever. I wonder if you can still sell a two stroke under 50cc. or I bet you can in the yeah, U.S.
0: It's so. It's so wild west under 50 cc's. I remember, I think this has changed, but when I got into motorcycling, under 50 cc's didn't even need a, a license. Yeah. I think as long as you had a helmet on,
1: yeah, you were good to go. Cause I remember seeing a few of those when I was in college. It's true. And it might still be that way in Portland. I know I've seen enough of those people on wicked scooters. When I say scooter, not conventional scooter, but like stand on scooters oh, with a yeah. gnarly two like stroke with the handlebars, a big old, um, Expansion chamber hanging off the back of the thing, and there— who knows how many CCs those are? Less than fifty, that's for sure. Just me, right? Dangerous as all get out with wheels that are, you know, four inches. That'd be an interesting thing. I've seen it even on on my in my house on Lombard, watching them scream by on the road, but kind of like not on the road. They're on the on the side. They can't be right on the sidewalk. But they're legal to grow No helmet. They can, I don't know what the deal is. Wizards, the where you put the engine on the bicycle. I've seen a couple of people like that. I often wonder. It's like, is that person going to get busted? What are the legal things? I don't know. I have no idea. If you rode an electric, one of these new e-bikes around, how would would you need to have some sort of a license and or helmet and or whatever to ride on the road with an e-bike? Like, I don't know. I've never never had that anybody ask and I haven't seen anybody do it. Yeah, I think the
0: e-bike. I think that'll be a similar thing where power is limited to below what a 50 cc sure. class engine would do, and it falls just kind of under that same kind of provision. But this is the changing landscape of transportation. You know, this is this is going to be an ongoing conversation, Quentin, that you and I are going to keep having over and over again because it's it's so transitional. Uh, we we know we see motorcycle brands that are trying to get into the e-bike range that are looking into. Things between an e-bike and a motorcycle and, and, you know, Yamaha came out with a three-wheeled whatever you want to call it. You know, Polaris is building slingshots. Honda keeps making V4 sport bikes that aren't sport bikes. Like, everyone's kind of got something that they're doing here. Yeah. I'm being a little crappy, but well, yeah, I'm just yeah. looking at, three, at three-wheelers too. And we see multi-wheelers being a big thing. So, <sighs> may you live in interesting times. Yep. Kota um, Kitty is done. So, I think we're done.
1: Yeah, I would say out of all these bikes, they're all going to have kickstands and they need to put them up. Are they? Mm -hmm. Are they though? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, that's like the Honda that bounces on itself. Self balancing. God damn it. There we go, right? Bounce up. Death
0: to the kickstand. Uh, My day is
1: finally coming. (laughs) You're just, you're on borrowed time, my friend. All right. Well, that's what I say kickstands up. All right. Good talk. I'll see you out there. Later. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Pop. <laughs>